Good morning. Um, those of you who are here in the first service might have heard that my brother's not here today, um, but he has a good excuse. But th that has allowed me to, to make an, a, a confession. Um, when I was in high school, I often secretly wished I was in my little brother's class. We went to a small Christian missionary school, and he was two years behind me in school. My year largely ended up divided into two camps. There was the goody-two-shoes camp and the openly rebellious camp, and we all fell out with each other. But Duncan's year had a hilarious group of guys, and they just had a great time pretty much all the time. But this meant that some teachers found them hard to handle. One day, two guys from the class, Dan O and Graham, were doing whatever, they were messing around, and after repeated warnings, the math teacher had had enough. And she started to really tell Graham off, pleading with him that exams were coming up, and unless he got some work done, he was not going to have any hope of doing okay. After a little while of this, Graham turned to her and said, Mrs. Crouch, why are you not telling Dano off as well? Without missing a beat, she sighed, she looked defeated, and then she answered him, Graham, I haven't given up on you yet. I was remembering this story this week because it really struck me reading our passage in Luke that sometimes when I'm confronted with my own sin, with my own repeated failures, this is how I often find myself relating to God. I can feel like he's a disappointed teacher. He may want the best for me. He may even love me. But time and again, when I, frust I frustrate him, I frustrate what he wants for me. He's tried so much to help me, to change me, but over and over again, I can let him down. And so I feel that he gets frustrated with me, and rightly so. And in the back of my mind, there sits this quiet fear that one day he might have had enough. One day he might decide, my time is better spent on people who will actually listen, people who will actually change, and then I will be left the way, I'm, the way that I am. So in, in the times when my mind slips into this way of thinking, when I sin, I don't come to God. I run from him. I hate having him frustrated and disappointed at me, so I avoid thinking about him at all. I end up living many of my days without him in them. Cursory nod now and again to his existence, but definitely not living in any kind of relationship with him. And although I know that this image of God is not true, Although I know that he is not a disappointed teacher in his character, in my head, in my intellect, I know that. But my actions show that sometimes, deep in my heart and deep in my bones, I approach God this way. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. We know in our head that God loves us, he forgives us, we know the gospel, we've tasted grace. But deep down, I realize that at times I still run and hide like Adam and Eve in the garden. There's something deficient in the way that I picture God and his character, in the way I picture how he relates to me. So uh, as George was saying, we're continuing our series in the final section of Luke's gospel. And we've come to chapter 22, verses 39 and 71. We're going to read it all, but we're going to read it in two parts. If you glance down at the headings of your Bible, you'll see that Luke is taking us through five scenes. The first three follow the disciples through one of the worst nights in their lives. 
in which they failed Jesus and are left wondering what happens next. Then there are two short scenes in which Jesus is interrogated by his captors. And they're not really interested in who he is because they already think they know. This is a heavy passage full of darkness and emotion. And spoiler warning, it won't all get resolved this week. You'll have to come back for Ollie and for Tim and Nick over the Easter period to hear the resolution to the story. But despite the heaviness of these verses, Luke can help us to look at two related questions that help us with our problem. One, what can I do in the midst of those dark nights when I am confronted by my own sin and I want nothing to do with God? And two, how do I know if the picture of God that I have in my head and deep in my heart is anything like what he's truly like? So that's where we're going. Let's look first at the first three scenes in which Luke focuses on the disciples. So we're going to read together Luke 22, verses 39 to 62. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. But while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, who was one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come to me with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw Peter and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So much of what Luke has written 
has been building towards this dark night and to the dark days that are to follow. If you remember all the way back to the end of 2022, when we were going through the middle section of Luke, one of the key themes we followed was that of discipleship. As Jesus walked on the way to Jerusalem, he took his followers on a road of discipleship, teaching them the nature of the kingdom of God and how they were to be like him. But now they were at the end of that road. The path to Jerusalem has come to an end. Jesus' travels are over. Now he is taken and led to the cross. That season for the disciples of walking with Jesus, of learning from him face to face, is coming to an end. This night, they're going to be left on their own. When you compare this section of Luke with the corresponding parts of Matthew and Mark, it's clear that Luke is really focusing on the disciples. He's highlighting their experience of this dark night. So although there is much more to cover in the passage, we're going to focus there. Then if you remember back to last week, Ian showed us that Jesus had confronted Satan in Luke chapter 4, and after that confrontation, the devil had departed until an opportune time. And then, as Ian had shown us, that opportune time had come. At the start of chapter 22, Satan enters into Judas and helps him plan his betrayal of Jesus. Then Jesus revealed to his disciples that Satan had also demanded to have them. He was after them to destroy them, as he had already done with Judas. Peter especially was singled out, and Jesus told him he was going to deny his master. As Jesus says to the mob, this was the hour when darkness reigned. Sorrowful, confused, emotionally overwhelmed disciples can't stay awake to pray, and then it's too late. When confronted, they react in fear and violence so contrary to the teaching of Jesus, and they have to be rebuked by their Lord. Then Jesus is betrayed by one who is close to him, and most of the disciples slip off into the night. Peter follows at a distance, but then all his pride is shown to be bluster at the questioning of a servant girl. And he denies even knowing Jesus after years of walking with him. Jesus, in the midst of his own mistreatment, turns and looks right at Peter, and it breaks Peter's heart. And he goes into the dark weeping bitterly. And this image of a weeping Peter walking into the night, that's the last image Luke leaves us with, with the, of the disciples until after Jesus' death. The disciples' world fell apart. They had followed Jesus all the way to Jerusalem for him to take his place as the rightful king, to bring the long-awaited kingdom of God, to reconcile his people. But he is betrayed by the kiss of a friend and goes without a fight to a horrific death. Their vision of themselves crumbled. Look at Peter. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He said that just a few hours ago, and it's all flung in his face by the questions of a servant girl and a look from his Lord. What a dark night. Without doubt, one of the worst, if not the worst night in the lives of Peter and the other disciples. Judas would hang himself after this night. And I wouldn't be surprised if Peter hadn't thought about it. Where does he go now? He's been confronted by his own weakness, his own failure, his own sin, and walks into the dark. And what about us? We may not have a night as dark as this one, but we will all have dark nights. 
whether they come in the form of dramatic betrayals of God and those we love, or the slow bleed of our repeated failures and sin. Nights when our human frailty, our weakness, our sin, our cowardliness, and the very darkness of Satan seem to all conspire together, and we see ourselves at our worst. What happens next? Where do we turn? Or maybe today, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you've been curious. You like the sound of forgiveness and grace and the love of God, but you feel it couldn't possibly extend to you. You feel you're too far gone. You feel if God knew your past, if he saw your dark nights and the dark inside of your head, he wouldn't want to know you. So when we see ourselves at our worst, when the night is blackest, what next? Luke's narrative doesn't immediately resolve that tension. Those questions are left hanging in the air and he pans the camera away from the disciples. He leaves them in that dark night and changes scenes, turning our attention to Jesus' captors and accusers. So let's read the rest of the passage. Verse 63 until the end of the chapter. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you a question, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They asked, are you then the Son of God? Jesus replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. At first glance, it might look like these two groups of people are asking Jesus who he is. If the question is, who is Jesus? The men who are guarding him want to see if his claims of being a prophet hold up to their cruel testing. Then the council interrogates him to find out who he is. But if you look a little closer, you quickly realize that no one is actually interested in Jesus' answer. They weren't really asking him anything. The guards had already made their mind up about Jesus. He wasn't a prophet. They're not testing anything. They're just mocking Jesus. And look again at the council's questions. They get Jesus to more or less agree that he is the Son of God, but then what do they say to Pilate? Look at 23, verse 2, just a couple of verses later. They say, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They're not trying to find out who Jesus is. They're just trying to put words in his mouth so they can present him as a threat to the Romans. That way they can get him killed. We see the falseness of their questioning in how Jesus answers them. If you are the Messiah, tell us. If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And they ask, are you then the son of God? And Jesus says, you say that I am. Commentators note that by this unusual response, what Jesus is actually say, saying is, I'm not going to deny it but you don't understand what you're asking. Yes, I am the Son of God, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. You say that I am. 
there's a real dark irony to this scene. Because if Jesus is the Christ, the chosen messianic king of God's people, then it's him who has the authority to define what God's kingdom looks like. If he is the son of God and the son of man, then he is exalted to the right hand of God and shares the very throne, the very life of God. The council have standing in front of them the ultimate authority on what God is like, but they don't really ask him anything. They're interrogating Jesus, but they don't want any real answers. They've made up their minds already. They have the Son of God standing in front of them, and instead of asking him what God is like, they hold on to their own ideas and hand him over as an imposter. But before I pick up stones to throw at the council here, I have to realize that I do something similar. Isn't that what I'm doing with my disappointed teacher, God? I have Jesus standing in front of me in the pages of Scripture, but I don't let him tell me who God is. Instead, I go instinctively to a false picture I have built of him in my head. All humans are prone to this. We see this time and again in the Bible. We shape an image of God in our minds that takes bits of things we've heard, bits of things we've been taught, our lived experience, our relationships with others, our own personality, and we mix them together into a vague picture of what God is like. If you're an atheist, you may not believe in the God that you have painted in your head. But how do you know that the God you don't believe in is anything like the God Jesus spoke about? Most likely, I won't believe in the God you have in your head either. But that doesn't make me an atheist because the picture in your head is not what God looks like. We Christians do this too without realizing it. As one author puts it, we come to know who God is through what we infer from our experience, we oftentimes, which oftentimes conflicts what, with what we have been taught about God explicitly. Our rational brain likes to think it's in charge of who we trust God to be, but knowing God is much more complex than that. Deep in our bones, all of us believe things about God that we would never circle as the right answer on a theology test. Some of our most firmly held beliefs about God exist below the surface of our conscious awareness, so that what we think we believe about God in our minds is often at odds with who we experience God to be in our lives. If you're a Christian and you don't understand what I mean, or you don't think that you do this, then please join me in a quick thought experiment. Go in your mind back to a recent time when you keenly felt a sense of your own sin. When you were in that dark night and you looked at your own failure before God, at that time, in the midst of your sin and your failure, what did God think of you? How did he respond to you? Did you hide from him? Did you want to move towards God or away from him? Maybe the false picture in your head is not a disappointed teacher, but where does your mind go? A few of the common distortions have been pointed out by various authors. Does he respond to you in that moment like a demanding judge? Always looking over your shoulder, ready to pounce on you as soon as you slip up. The only way we feel we can interact with this false picture of God is to always beat ourselves up, always focus on how awful we are and emphasize how we can never ever do anything to please God. 
Here the picture of God the Father is a judge who begrudgingly forgives us because he has to, because of Jesus. But he secretly wishes he could damn you like you deserve. Or do you picture the opposite, a doting grandfather, ready to wink and look the other way? This is what my, my four-year-old Nathan wants me to be like a father. All this week, he's been blaming all his bad behavior on a fruit shoot that my mom gave him four days ago. Even in the car on the way here, he said, the fruit shoot made me do it. This false God does not call us to change, doesn't call us to repentance or to growth. He's happy as long as we're happy. He's quick to overlook wrongs. He makes excuses for us, and then he hands you another fruit shoot. Or is he a distant deity? He's never, never there when you want him. You have to pray the right prayers. You have to work up the right emotions in worship. You have to get into the right mindset before he takes any notice of you. You plead and make deals with this God before he might show up in your life. As the authors put it, we facilitate between the strenuous effort of trying to get God's attention and the low-grade hopelessness and resignation of living as though God were absent. Maybe you don't relate to any of those. Maybe you have your own distortion of the character of God in your minds, as unique as you are. I think that my mind goes to the disappointed teacher partially because I'm prone to being a people pleaser. I was in that goody-two-shoes side of my class, and I always hate disappointing people and I project that on God. For some of you here, you really have internalized the gospel. And when you sin, your mind flies to the forgiveness and grace and love of God, and your sin does not keep you from God. And praise God if that is you. But for the rest of us, and if we're honest, probably for most of us, we're back to our first question. Where do I go on those dark nights when I look into the face of my repeated failure and sin. How can I relate to God on those dark nights? Look again at verse 70. They asked Jesus, are you the son of God? You say that I am. Yes, I am the son of God, but that doesn't mean what you think it means. The son of God did not fit their expectations. God himself did not fit their expectations. The picture they had did not align with reality. But thankfully and gloriously, the scriptures are very clear on where we find that reality. There's no ambiguity here. Hebrews 1.1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1.15, the sun is the image of the invisible God. John 12.44, then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. And John 14.8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, 
Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? God the Father looks like Jesus. The character of God has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Of course, the Bible has lots to say about God and his character, but I don't get to pick and choose verses and construct an image. Jesus is the image of God. The Gospels aren't just Sunday school stories as a prelude to the cross. In them, we actually see the very character of God as he walked this earth, as he interacted with real people in real situations. We know and defend the truth that Jesus is God, but sometimes we've not let the truth settle into our hearts that God is Jesus. One theologian has put it this way, paraphrasing 1 John 1, 5, God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. So whatever image I have in my head when I think about the character of God, or more tellingly, whatever I think about who God is when I'm at my worst, I have to hold up that to the true image of God, to the person of Jesus. And I must allow him to dismantle any false images of God so that I can come to relate to God as he really is. The disciples are in the garden passed out in exhausted sorrow. Despite all the times they've not gotten it, all the times they've missed the mark, and if you remember back to our previous series in Luke, that's another theme of the gospel. Despite all of that, does Jesus walk past their sleeping forms? Does he go off to find some disciples that would stay awake? Is he a frustrated teacher in search of better students? No, he wakes them up. He repeats to them his words of life, even as it's too late for them to pray and the mob is closing in. He hasn't given up on them. The mob arrives. Judas shows them which man to arrest. But hear Jesus' words. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Even here, even to a man who has sold him for some coins, handed him over to a horrific death, even here, listen to the gentleness in Jesus' voice as he gives Judas a chance to open his eyes to what he's doing. A disciple completely goes off the rails against everything Jesus has taught him, pulls out a sword, and cuts an ear off. There's no doting grandfather happy to look the other way and say, oh, you did it for me, I know you're tired. No, no more of this, Jesus says. Your actions are leading you away from me. And that man who is part of the arresting crowd of cowards who has come in the night, empowered by darkness, to unjustly arrest and kill Jesus, what does Jesus do for him? He heals him. The man doesn't have to first get his theology straight and his priorities right before God can come near to him. There is no distant deity. The God that he has come to arrest, that God steps right up to him, puts his hand on his bloody head, and heals him. Peter disowns and denies Jesus three times. Jesus had warned him it would happen. He'd instructed him to pray so he wouldn't fall into temptation, but Peter didn't. Then a little servant girl dismantles Peter's strength with a simple question. And does the demanding judge shout over condemnation from across the courtyard? Does he use Peter's shame as a weapon to manipulate him into better behavior? No. And then step back into last week's passage, into verse 33, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. The disciples failed to pray that night that they wouldn't fall into temptation, but Jesus had prayed for them. Peter's faith would falter, but it would not fail because Jesus had prayed for him and Jesus had given him hope on the other side of his sin when you have turned back. Jesus was on their side as they struggled against sin. He was for them. He was not against them. And these are only the moments from our one passage, but read the Gospels. See how Jesus interacts, the very representation of who God is interacts with people in their moments of sin and darkness. Allow the character of Jesus to dismantle whatever picture of God's character you have deep in your bones and rebuild it to look like Him. Okay, we're we're coming to the end. The I am, the one self-sufficient, timeless, limitless creator of everything, of all time and space and reality, the shaper of history, the reason everything exists, the only true God has shown us his heart. He has shown us his character, what he is really like. God the Father looks like Jesus. God is Christ-like. That doesn't mean they're the exact same thing, but Jesus is the image, the exact representation of God. And in Luke 22, we see a God that moves towards sinners, not away from them. He heals his enemies. He restores those who deny and disown him. He holds out hope for those who betray him. We see a God who in strength and dignity walks towards the cross, quiet and humble. This is not the God the mocking guards or the council expected. It's not the God we expect, but it is the God he has shown himself to be. Earlier in Luke, Jesus is called the friend of sinners as an insult, but he doesn't despise that title. Most of the sinners in the Gospels liked being around Jesus. He did not leave them in their sin, but he didn't avoid them. He didn't strike them down. He didn't walk away from them in disappointment. If I really had a picture of God's character that looked like that, that looked like Jesus, deep in my being, what would I do when I sinned? I would no longer feel the need to go and hide and avoid God until some of the shame had worn off. I would move towards God in my need rather than away from him. If I really let this fact that God looks like Jesus sink into my very being, it would fundamentally change the way I interact with God on a day-to-day basis. In the next couple of weeks, Luke will show us how God makes this relationship with himself possible, how he expressed his love for us in Jesus on the cross, how he reconciles us to himself, us to himself. But that's not in our passage today, and you'll have to come back for that. But for today, whether you are just hearing about God for the first time, or if you've learned about him for decades, we must allow the Jesus we see in the Gospels to rehabilitate any distorted pictures of God our minds have fallen into. Then we will instinctively know where to go on that dark night. We will start living lives in which failure makes us move towards God rather than away from him. So when we sin this week, 
let's examine our hearts. Examine what we really believe about the character of God and then hold that up to the radiance of Jesus, the very nature of God. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have revealed to us who you are in your Son. We thank you that you have shown us your character, your heart. We thank you that we are shocked, we are scandalized by how humble you are, by how gentle you are, by how loving and forgiving and good you are. Shape our hearts, Lord. Help us to know Jesus deep in our hearts. Help us to know the gospel deep in our hearts. So throughout our days, we run towards you, not away from you. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for um, the reconciliation that you have given us. Help us, Father, to, to pray, to look to him in our dark nights. Um, shape our hearts, Lord. Make us remember Jesus and make us look more like him. In Jesus' name, amen.